Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. Normally in civil litigation, the parties and their lawyers are the only ones making motions, filing briefs, and arguing the case. But increasingly, outsiders are entering the case to file what are called amicus briefs. In fact, nearly all cases argued before the US Supreme Court have at least one amicus brief filed, and most cases have many amicus briefs filed. What are amicus briefs? Who is filing them and why? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Allison Larson, the Alfred Wilson and Mary I. W. Lee Professor of Law and the Director of the Institute of the Bill of Rights Law at William & Mary Law School. Allie, welcome to the show. Thank you, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with terminology. What's an amicus brief? So it a, has a fancy Latin name. Uh, amicus curiae means friend of the court in Latin. But it's just as you say, it's just a brief that's filed by an outsider to the litigation, somebody who has an interest in the case but is not a party to the case. And I should say, you, know, you can call it amicus brief or amicus brief, just as Breyer calls it a micus brief. Um, it all means the same thing, a brief by an outsider filed in litigation to help the court. What are the procedures for filing an amicus brief? So there are some rules, but they're, they're pretty liberal. Um, you have to have permission from the parties, but in the vast majority of cases, the parties give that sort of blanket consent. They give their permission for everybody to file. It's not universally true, but it's true in the vast majority of cases. The US government, so the Solicitor General, which is the person that represents the interests of the United States at the Supreme Court, they don't have to have permission. So they can file an amicus brief regardless of, what, of uh, whether the parties say yes or no. But for most people, you have to make certain disclosures. You have to say what your interest is. The disclosures aren't very heavy. Uh, and then you can just file it. Anybody can file it as long as the blanket permission has been given. So who generally files amicus briefs? There are some repeat players that you might suspect. So the ACLU files a lot of these briefs, the Chamber of Commerce files a lot of these briefs, um, but there's also more um, sort of specific groups to the case, like interests of union workers or interests in the environmental impact of, of the Gulf of Maine, or uh, there, there's, there's sort of specific groups. Sometimes they're very, they exist for the very reason of filing amicus briefs at the court. It's part of the way they show value to their constituents is look at us, we're trying to impact policy by influencing the court and to do so we filed this amicus brief. And so why, what are some of the other reasons why some of these groups might file amicus briefs? Uh, you did mention that maybe they wanna show that they're advancing their own interests, but what other reasons might uh, generate amicus briefs? There's a whole host of reasons. So um, there's some briefs that we sort of colloquially call me too briefs, um, by which we mean there are briefs that reiterate the arguments that the parties have made. Like, I think the law should be construed this way, or I think it should be construed that way. Um, those are pretty common. Another type of brief that is growing in popularity is what is known as a Brandeis brief. It's named after um, a sort of a pioneer brief filed by uh, Louis Brandeis, 1908. And a Brandeis brief adds factual information to the record. So there are experts like 
we're historians and we're here to tell you what the second amendment really means or we are people that work in the industry that you're thinking about and we want to tell you uh, how much money's at stake um so there's sort of factual briefs come in and that type of brief is becoming much more uh, popular then there's these briefs um that are sort of leave me alone briefs those those are briefs that ask the court not to rule in a specific way um whatever you do just don't say this because that would be very detrimental to my interest um and then of course you just have the briefs i think that are um a little bit more political theater right they're the ones i mentioned before they're they're filed just to show like the advocacy they're they're filed for the sake of showing value so there's there's a whole bunch of these briefs and there's many 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 there's been an enormous growth spurt of amicus briefs at the supreme court over the last 30 years tremendous like 800% increase what are some of the downsides to amicus briefs so i've i've written a little bit about this um i tend to worry because these briefs come in often at the 11th hour so they're coming in after the record is closed they're not subjected to very much adversarial testing. So it's true that the parties can respond to them, but when you have, you know, a hundred briefs that are filed in any case, how much can you really devote to any one factual claim that's made by any particular um, amici? And I worry that the justices like all of us sort of inclined to look for information to confirm their pre-existing worldview. And I think amicus briefs are a way for them to do that. So there's the downside, I would say, is you end up infecting the court with information that may not be reliable or hasn't been stress tested in the way we typically test factual claims that are made in a court of law. So then amicus briefs can offer some valuable information, but might have some downsides. What's your overall take on them? I think they... I think there's value to them. So I, I don't take the position that we should eliminate all of them, but I do think we need some stricter procedures in place to make sure that the information presented is reliable. So I, I've made the case for increased disclosure uh, when you're making a factual submission in, in an amicus brief in terms of where your data comes from, who is funding your data, um, that I think is information that the justices should be able to see. And I don't think the justices have the institutional capacity to fact check all these briefs on their own. So I think, I think what we need to do is create rules that require the disclosure from the people who want to file the briefs. You could have an amicus brief on the rules for amicus briefs. You know, I would sign that one. <laughs> Allie, thanks so much for being on the show and for telling us about amicus briefs. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites uchastings.edu slash CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson.